We're going to begin reading in verse 25 of Hebrews 12. And we're going to read down through verse 6 of chapter 13. I'll read aloud, and you're invited to follow along as I read. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, and that's at Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We'll stop there. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. So we entered this final chapter of Hebrews. We find an approach that is found in many of the New Testament letters, particularly those letters that are written by Paul. And this approach often presents first the who, what, where, and how of the gospel, walking the reader through the foundational doctrine of the gospel and important theological truths related to those doctrines. At some point in the letter, the writer will then transition to the why of the gospel, the who, what, where, how it all happened, when it all happened, and what flows out of that is in the first part of the letter, and the second part of the letter is often the why of the gospel. A familiar portion of scripture to many of you would be the book of Romans, and particularly Romans chapter 12. After walking us through that no one stands before God in holiness, no one is accepted before God because all us are sinners, all stand condemned, Paul then speaks of David and Abraham and how they were justified by faith, and he begins to give some theological outflow of justification by faith, speaks of our standing before God, goes back into, in chapter 9, really hard doctrine. I call it the 
chicken bone of the New Testament, the one that gets stuck in your throat, where he talks about Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. He talks about Pharaoh and how Pharaoh did all of God's will and yet he stands condemned before God and how can that happen? And then he moves into chapters 10, 11, and 12, or 10 and 11 to talk about Israel and their future with God and how they have been taken out of the out of the vine and they'll be grafted back in uh, in a future date and then he comes to chapter 12 after all of that heavy doctrine and theology he comes to chapter 12 in the letter to the church of rome and he says i appeal to you therefore brothers and sisters by the mercies of god that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice is this a familiar passage have you guys heard this one before that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, your reasonable worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And Paul will spend the rest of the letter of Romans, 13 through the end of the letter, or 12 through the end of the letter, laying out or fleshing out this idea of acceptable worship. He'll go into gifts. He'll talk about getting along within the church. All these different things that are based upon all of the doctrine and theology he's already laid down. Who Christ is, what Christ has done, how he has done it, where he has done it. Now, This is how you should live. This is the why of the gospel. But the question is, what does acceptable worship look like? He speaks of it in chapter 12 of Romans, and he speaks of it here in chapter 12 of Hebrews. He says there in verse 28, let us offer, therefore, And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. What is acceptable worship? Based upon all that Christ has done for us and all that he is to us in chapters 1 to 12 of Hebrews, we're now called to acceptable worship, offering that to God. So the question to me is, what is acceptable worship? What does it look like? Now, for many people, when you bring up the words worship, Christians worship, one of the first things they're going to think of is Sunday morning. That's worship. I mean, for pity's sake, we even have worship leaders, right? We have worship teams, and we have worship leaders, That's what Sunday is about because it's the, what kind of service is the Sunday morning service? It's the worship service. So when you start to talk about worship, that word immediately for many Christians takes them to Sunday morning. And by the way, we don't have a worship team. We don't use that term. And we don't have a worship leader. We gather together for corporate worship. But I, maybe whoever follows me someday, will have, well, he'll want to use the term worship leader and worship team and all that. And fine, I'll probably be drooling on myself and I won't care anymore. Anyway, you do what you want to do. 
But that's where our minds go when we talk about worship. I would, hmm, it's really hard for me to resist. You know who our worship leader is? Holy Spirit. That's our worship leader. He's the one who produces worship in us to our Father. We're just cooperating. And we're gathering corporately to do that. There's a whole lot more I could say about that. But again, most people think of what happens on Sunday morning at a church building with a worship leader. I'm not going to talk about that this morning because that's not what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. He's not talking about specifically Sunday morning. He's not specifically talking about a human worship leader or human worship teams. What Hebrews 12 is talking about when it speaks of acceptable worship is a far more comprehensive form of worship and idea of worship than what happens for one or two or three hours on Sundays. When he speaks of offering to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, he is speaking of your everyday life. Every moment of every day, regardless of which day it is in your life. It is speaking of your view of God. Because he says, let us offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For your God and my God is a consuming fire. So he's speaking of our view of God and the outflow of the gospel in your life. The outflow of the gospel in all of your life. And again, I say that because it's coming from chapters 1 to 12, which is about Christ and the gospel. It's about living every day with a gospel-saturated perspective of God, who He is in relation to you because of the gospel. It is living every day with a perspective, a gospel-saturated perspective of what He has accomplished in Jesus and your cooperation with the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in you. And I get that term, everyday worship. It's a great little phrase. I wish I had come up with it, but I actually got it from another person. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying to us is we need to live with a perspective of worship that is everyday worship, the normal routine and way of living of our lives not just one day or not just when we're around other Christians, but everyday worship, gospel-centered thinking that produces gospel-centered living. That's what he's calling us to here. Gospel-centered thinking with a reverence and awe of God because our God is a consuming fire. Gospel-centered thinking that produces gospel-centered living. 
So that leads me to a question of then, what does everyday worship look like? What does gospel-centered living, coming from a gospel-centered thought process, look like? Well, that's what Hebrews 13 is about. This is what your life is going to look like if you live a gospel-centered life, if you live with everyday worship. And it's interesting where he starts. Everyday worship starts with loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. I love this. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. There's no chapter breaks in the original. It's just one flowing thought. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And if I live before God in reverence and awe, understanding fully who he is and yet also fully understanding what he has done for me, I will be a person who fosters who moves forward, who continues brotherly love. Let brotherly love continue. I want you to understand the importance of these words. Let brotherly love continue. I I would love to think this morning that you have heard me talk about this topic enough that your mind is running ahead of me and you're already filling in all the blanks as they relate to the idea of brotherly love. But I'm not that naive. And I know you're not perfect. And I know your minds are going in a million places this morning. And I know that it's really easy to start zoning out right about now. So I want to rehash and think through some things that we've talked about before. The importance of these words, let brotherly love continue, is highlighted by how they connect to the why of the gospel, how they connect to our everyday worship, how they connect to gospel-centered thinking and therefore gospel-centered living. That wasn't a voice from God or an angel. That was John's coffee cup. And now he's embarrassed. That's okay, John. Listen to these words. The gospel is premised upon and steeped in love. The gospel is premised upon and steeped in love. And I will say to you that there is much of scripture that explains this to us, and we've heard it so many times that we we take it for granted. But if it's premised upon and steeped in love, then the gospel, and particularly love, is the fountainhead of the outflow of the gospel in our lives. If the gospel is premised and steeped in love, then love will be the the outflow of the gospel 
in our love uh, in our lives, or at least an outflow of the gospel in our lives. And the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us here, or is telling us that love of our spiritual family is the primary evidence of one's belief in the gospel. The gospel itself is founded in love. The outflow of the gospel in us is love. And the evidence that we believe the gospel is love for our spiritual family these people that sit around you and other Christians in this community. I'll just throw this in right now. If you don't love other Christians in our community, whether that is other solid gospel preaching churches, if you see them as competitors, or if you are at odds because of your attitude and your heart towards another person who is a believer. That is strong evidence that there is a problem with worship of God in your life, that there is a problem of love in your life. That you are not walking in worship of God and it's possible that you may not even be a believer. I say that the gospel is premised upon and steeped in love because the Bible tells us this, that God so loved the world. You can finish this. You learned this if you grew up in church. You probably learned this when you were three or four years old. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, Jesus, will not experience final judgment and punishment of God upon their sin. That's what perish means. We're so familiar with that verse that we see athletes put it on their face, John 3:16, and we're like, oh, brother. Or, you know, they would hold up their signs in the stadiums, which they're not allowed to do anymore, on the field goals at the, at the front row behind the field goal uprights, John 3:16. We're so familiar with it, we're tired of it. And yet it is the most demonstrative statement of the foundation of the gospel that there is. For God so loved the world. He did this. There's no qualifications on that. Just for God so loved the world, He gave His His one and only Son. And the Bible also tells us the same writer in a different letter, a different book. He tells us that God himself is love and he connects it directly to the gospel. When he tells us that God himself is love, he doesn't just say that God loves. He says that God is is love. It is who he is. 
And that same writer, the Apostle John, goes on to say this, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God loved us to a point that it drove him to display that love by sending Jesus into the world so that we might know life through Jesus. We could say safely that without God's love, there would be no gospel. Without God's love, there would be no gospel. So I, I think it's safe to say that the gospel is premised upon and steeped in love. But I also say then that love is the fountainhead of the outflow of the gospel in our lives and that love of our spiritual family is the primary evidence of one's belief in the gospel. To support this, I would give you a few more of John's words. He says to us, Beloved, that's you and me, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's not hard to understand. It doesn't require deep study to pull out the meaning that John intended there. Peter says that Paul sometimes writes things that are hard to understand, but John's pretty straightforward. If God so loved us, if we have experienced this love from him, we ought also to love one another. John just says that as a matter of fact, like it's just, here's A, here's B. And they go together. And there shouldn't be any separation between them. He goes on to say that no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is completed in us. What John is saying there, and I'm, I apologize if this, if you're sitting there saying, I can figure this out on my own, I don't need you to explain it. I apologize if that's what you're thinking, but I want to make sure we get it. By saying this second part, if we love one another, God's abiding in us and his love is completed in us, when he puts that next to no one has ever seen God, what he's telling us is that people see God when they see you love one another. It puts God on display. He goes on to say, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You only know love if you know God. And if you know God and his, then his love abides in you, it evidences that you have been born of God, that you know God. But anyone who does not love, and this is in context of loving one another, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 
If you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, John would stand up here and say, sorry, but you don't. Uh, John wouldn't say sorry. This is a son of thunder. He wouldn't say sorry. He would just say, you don't know God. Ultimately, we love God because He first loved us and we love one another because God the Holy Spirit who is love and who dwells in us produces love in us that manifests itself in love for our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Galatians 5 says that the fruit of the Spirit is fill in the blank. What? Love. And most people, most scholars, take that construction, the way Paul writes that, as the fruit of the Spirit is love. What does that look like? Joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Why would Paul say that the fruit of the Spirit is love? Because God is love. And the Holy Spirit is God. So when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you, love dwells in you. And love overflows from you. It's the fruit of the Spirit. So much so that John says that people can see God manifested in you because they see love manifested. I think it's also important for us to understand that God intends for his love in us to manifest itself as love for our spiritual brothers and sisters. Because he intends to display himself and his power in us by the outward expression of the love he has poured into us. God wants to display himself. He wants to display his power. He wants to display himself through the transformational work he does in human beings. So we don't, we're told a lot today that we need to learn to love ourselves. And there there is a, there are times when people have debates and we use the phrase that they're talking past each other. Heard that phrase? In other words, this person is saying one thing and this person is hearing that and responding, but they're not hearing what the first person is saying accurately and they're responding inaccurately. And you have a whole conversation where nothing is really heard by either side. There is a place, this might get me in trouble with some people, it already has in other places, but there is a place for us understanding that we are made in the image of God, that we are loved by God, that we are His workmanship, that He has created us, and to that extent, we need to love that. 
And we are, we are to love what God loves. So I agree with a therapist who would say to a person who is cutting themselves, who is trying to eliminate themselves, or only sees themselves in a self-loathing way, I would agree with that therapist that there needs to be a consideration of loving oneself. I think what that therapist often means and what I'm meaning are two different things though when we say that. But don't denounce the word, just express a clear definition of what that word means. But within that idea, there is also, as sinners, by nature, we are completely self-focused, we are completely self-deceived, and we are self-gratifying. On our own, and society has repercussions for people who live in the worst of these things of self-focused, self-deceived, and self-gratifying lives. But on our own, by our nature, our life is wrapped up in us. And human beings without Christ are driven by their lustful cravings for what they see, what they feel, and self-exaltation. Right now, Vladimir Putin is a poster child for pursuing what he sees, he craves in his sight, what he craves to feel, and what he craves with self-exaltation. But the reality is, a lot of us have very similar cravings and very similar drives because of our human nature. We just don't have the power to express that. I was saying to somebody the other day that there's an old saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I used to use that phrase quite a bit and I came to realize one day it's not accurate. Absolute power doesn't corrupt me absolutely. Absolute power simply gives me the opportunity to express the corruption that's in me. When you read the Bible and you read about really corrupt things happening that people are doing, look at how much power they have in relation to the other person. It's not the power that corrupted them, it's the power that frees that corruption to be manifested and to do without repercussion what you want to do. Which is a good reason not to crave power. Because all of us inside have corruption present. And I said to that person, it's why I have the leadership style that I have at this point in life. I try to give away power because I know the corruption that exists in me and what happens when I have power. I know what I do to people. I know how I use people. Without Christ, Our whole life is consumed with cravings for what we see and what we want to feel and for self-exaltation. Apart from a gracious work of God in humans, nothing 
we do is good. But for those who have come to know Christ, while our works are still tainted by sin, we become capable of good works which point others to God and validate the truth of the gospel. All of that to say that God intends to manifest himself, to manifest his power by taking those kinds of human beings and transforming them into people who actually care about other people and actually love other people without expecting anything in return. You say, well, I'm a person who loves other people without expecting anything in turn. Okay, when was the last time you did something for someone who that was magnanimous, it was, it was a very nice thing, it was sacrificial for you, and they didn't give you a thank you card or say thank you. And what did that do to you right about here? That's a little meter to tell you how much of that was love and how much of that was what you got out of it. Well, they never said thank you. Hmm. Well, then why did you, is that why you did it? Well, no, but they should have said thank you. Sure seems like that's why I can't have that conversation with you face to face, person to person, but I can do it up here this morning because it's less, you know, less personal. You get my point? Sin resides in us, and it, it taints what we do. But God can demonstrate his power in us, not only manifest himself in the love that flows with, from us, but manifest that he has power to transform sinful human beings into the image of Christ. That's what he's after. And the image of Christ is that we love one another. If you love me, keep my commandments. And a new command I give to you that you love one another. So based on that and based on Hebrews 12, I think we can understand that everyday worship, living my life, every moment of every day should be defined by love for my brothers and sisters in the family of God. And as the writer presents it to us here in verse 1, that love already exists in us. He doesn't say, start loving one another. He doesn't say you need to love one another. He says, let it continue. And that's actually a command. The language is a command. It doesn't sound like it as much here in the English, but in the language that he used, he's saying, continue brotherly love. Continue love for the spiritual family of God. So that love already exists in us and our acceptable worship, our everyday acceptable worship is to continue to live in that way as we lean into the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. You say, but I can't love that person. You don't know what they've done. I I feel that. I feel that. 
And you're right, you can't. If we're going to talk moral people who do good things because they work hard at doing good things, you can't do that. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can. Don't pray, God love this person through me. Cop out, cheap talk. Pray, God, you've already given me the power to love this person. May the Holy Spirit to transform my mind and my wants and my desires so that I love this person. Is a technical term, and I'll explain it later. You know, it's very technical. But following this encouragement to continue in love, we learn in verses 2 to 6 of five ways that we should pursue love in the family of God. And don't panic, I'm not going to cover all five this morning. I just want to talk about two of them. First, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. What does it look like to love my brothers and sisters? What does everyday worship of loving the people of God look like? Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Because some have entertained angels unawares in doing so. I got to tell you this story. Years ago, when we were at Tama, Tama Toledo, Terry and I were in the office one morning, and this guy came in looking for money. And you would not believe how many people who are Baptists are the poorest people on the face of the earth and looking for money. Everybody who comes into the office, whether it's there or here, tells me that they grew up Baptist. And they've gotten a little ways away from it. But I've just come to the conclusion that every poor person on the street is a Baptist or something. I don't know exactly what's going on there, but they want to sell me on being a Baptist. But he came in and he was looking for money. And I had a policy there, and I kind of do the same thing here. We have a little more involved process here. But I was not going to just throw money at people who wasted money. And I've always looked at it as the people who are giving this money gave up things that they could have had for themselves in order to help people in need. So I'm careful with how that benevolence money goes out there, and I just don't throw it around. But I was questioning this guy on a few things and um, came to the conclusion that it was basically a con. It wasn't hard to figure that one out. And I told him no, and he started getting quite upset with me. And, um, and he threw out this angels unaware thing, but in kind of a mixed up way. Um, <laughs> he thought it said that you're an angel and you're unaware that you're an angel. Because I, I, he said, you know, the Bible says that, you, that, that I might be an angel unaware. And I said to him, I don't know if you're an alien. I don't know what you are, but I'll guarantee you, you are not an angel. And that came out of the context of the names he was calling me at that point in time. He wasn't saying nice Bible terms to me. He was being quite unkind and profane. And, and uh, so then he said, well, 
well, it says that they're angels unaware, and I just might not know that I'm an angel. And I, I said, you're not an angel. After that, he said, okay, well, then I, I'm going to tell everybody in your congregation that I caught you fooling around with your secretary if you don't give me money. <laughs> and I looked at him. I just started laughing. I said, go ahead. They'll be fine with that. That's my wife. <laughs> they don't mind if I fool around with her in the office. And then... He didn't believe me, so then Terry pulled out her driver's license, and I pulled out mine, and we showed him we were married. And then he went out the door, not speaking angel language. I don't know what angel language sounds like, but he was not speaking angel language. So, so the writer of Hebrews says that you should love one another, and one of the ways that you love one another is through hospitality. Now, what is hospitality? Most of us, when we think of the word hospitality, we think of it in terms of entertaining friends in our home and specifically having them over for dinner. And that's not an incorrect view. It's just an incorrect limitation. Having people over into our homes is a form of hospitality. But hospitality should not be limited to that. The word that's translated as hospitality in its most basic meaning refers to a love of strangers or a love of foreigners. It means graciously welcoming and out of love offering to those people material possessions even though and especially because you don't know them. but you do know they're part of your family in Christ. Adding that mix into the meaning of the word takes us, I think, beyond dinner and a movie. In keeping this word within the context of everyday worship by loving the people of God, I would suggest a few practical possibilities for what it means to be hospitable to strangers. Interesting how he put it that way. One simple way would involve getting to know and developing relationships with others in the family of God, and specifically this part of the family of God. I don't want to limit it to that. I don't want to limit it. I don't want to ever communicate that the family of God sits here only or better, or best. The family of God is spread out all over this area and across the world. But let's just bring it for the sake of this morning down to here and ask one simple question. How do you respond when a visitor walks in the door on Sunday morning? Is it, I don't know that person. Oh well. Or is it, I don't know that person. Oh, I'm an introvert. Somebody else. Let, let the extroverts talk to them. Or, I don't know that person. I won't say the right thing. You know, based on this verse, it would seem to me that a visitor walks in the door and they would be swarmed as an expression of love as a possible brother and sister in Christ. 
Is that going too far? Am, am I going too far with that? When we lived in Tama, there are a lot of um, generations of families. And they have a hard time finding people to marry because there's so many cousins that live in that town. So when we moved into Tama with a 15-year-old daughter and 11-year-old daughter from outside the community, everybody was like, ooh, fresh jeans in the gene pool. And they were wanting to get to know us, and they were wanting to get to know our daughters, and right away, hey, you know, you should meet my son. You should meet my, my nephew. You know, you could just see it. And the girls were like, this is weird. And it was weird. It was a little bit creepy at times because they would just push. But, you know, that was what they were looking for was fresh jeans in the gene pool. Seriously. But it, it has crossed my mind a few times as to when new people come in. Are, do they feel welcomed? And do you, beyond, hi, I'm Joe, and this is my wife, Josephine, and... Um, hi, glad you're here, and then disappearing. Is there more interaction? Are we looking? Do we love? Is there that expression? I would ask this question too. Are there people in this church family that you don't really know beyond a face or a first name? And what are you doing to go beyond that level? I would ask you, how open are you to others? You know, it's difficult to be to know other people if you aren't willing to be known. Are you willing to learn about and welcome unfamiliar cultural differences in the order that other Christians feel at home and comfortable with you? And in that context, I would ask you, when was the last time a person of different skin color ate with you or at your dinner table? You know, I don't know if you've ever considered this, but God's family has more than white people. I have said to Ami, who's sitting here this morning, I have said to Pharaoh and Salome, I said to Grace last week, I have a lot of respect for you because this is not your culture. We white people do not behave like you behave in church. And yet they love being here enough that they're willing to set aside their culture and the enjoyment of their culture to be with you. The black churches are not quiet places. And they're not places where people stand still while they sing. I mean, the culture here is that if you put your hands up, you know, you, somebody might think you're weird. Terry does, other people do, but we keep them pretty low. But we don't start doing this thing, going out in the aisle and, and swaying. Hips don't get involved. We keep them here. High and tight. Good. And these people are saying, we love these people enough. 
And we want to be part of this enough that we're willing to set that aside and not make it an issue in order to be part of them. If that doesn't generate respect and love in your heart for them, something's wrong. Okay, I'm getting too personal, aren't I? So I'll move on. The second way we're supposed to pursue love in the family of God is to remember our persecuted and mistreated, cruelly brothers, cruelly treated brothers and sisters. And when I hear this, it raises the question of how we support those in our spiritual family who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. I don't know that we here in Cedar Rapids really have a lot of pressure right now for the sake of the gospel, but there's, it's coming. It's not far out there. It's around the corner. Workplaces are going to begin to require not tolerance of evil, but affirmation of evil. But we do have friends who have families that don't support them in their walk with Christ. And I do think that most of us respond quickly to pray for Christians in these situations. But I think too often we can fall into an out of sight, out of mind scenario. And it's not just that we don't care, we just haven't established a practice of remembering. So I would suggest that this remembering should go beyond prayer to physical, emotional, and spiritual support where possible. And that's where things can get messy and painful. We have people in our body who struggle with messy and painful relationships with family, physical family that are unbelievers. And that means we should go beyond prayer and just remembering to pray to a place that requires sacrificial sacrifice of time, energy, material possessions, and disruptions of our schedules. I don't want to mention any names because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But there are people in our midst who are lonely because their families reject them and attack them. That requires time and energy. There are people in our family that have financial needs. That requires possessions. It requires us to personally empathize with and move out of our comfort zones to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters. It's a place with no easy solutions or answers. And if you say, I don't know of anybody in our congregation in that boat, well, that goes back to the first one, known and being known. So I would ask this question, and I, I hesitate to ask this question, but is it possible that our hesitation with or even avoidance of these kind of situations with that people are experiencing is it possible that it reveals a lack of love? And if so, I would say that we need to keep in step with the Spirit. 
And we also need to remind ourselves of the great love that God lavished upon us. I think it's also helpful for us to acknowledge that because of Jesus, he never ignores our need. He never walks away from us. And so it would seem to come back to the idea that we should love others because and how he has loved us. What kind of person were you when he set his affection, his affection upon you? And what kind of material, time, energy did Jesus display for you in order that you might be called the children of God? Everyday worship. These are the things of what it means to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe the outflow of the gospel, the outflow of the love. So everyday worship, let family love continue, even when they're strangers to you, and especially when they're suffering because of loyalty to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it is at times difficult to comprehend the love that you have shown to us. But I love the words of the Apostle John when he says, Behold what kind of love you have lavished upon us that we should be called your children. Father, I pray that through the work of the Holy Spirit in us that you would teach us what it means to live every moment in worship of you, in worship of what you have done for us, so that the outflow of our lives will be the outflow of love of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Give us a love for strangers that goes beyond our barriers that we establish. Father, I pray that at Northbrook, no brother or sister in Christ would ever feel like a stranger and that we would never see them as a stranger, someone that we don't know or someone that we don't know well. Father, out of that knowledge that we gain, may you help us by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Gospel's presence in our minds. Help us to meet the needs of those around us who suffer. In your Son's name, amen.